Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast bringing you true crime from around the world. Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. Hi Islanders, how are you all? Now, just a note before we start, I mentioned the other episode about being involved in the Missing in Michigan event. Well, I will need to put a bit of effort into that in the next coming weeks. So again, I won't have a case next week, but it is for a good cause. And I'll give you more details about the event, which will be a virtual event in the next episode in two weeks' time. Now, this week's case is one I heard about ages ago, and I recently saw a short bit of it on YouTube, so I thought you might like to hear about it. Tonight, we go to Notaway County in the tiny town of Skidmore, Missouri, where the town bully is finally stood up to. Now, references tonight are from the Times Advocate, California, NowToWayNews.com, PriceFuneralHomeMaryville.com, In Broad Daylight by Harry N. McLean, Missouri County Marriage Naturalization, and also we've got some court records. Okay, this episode has a severe trigger warning. I won't be going into detail of what he does until the end part where he's permanently silenced by the townsfolk. More the trigger warning is because he is probably up there with Jimmy Savile when it comes to children, or even Epstein. In 1981, Skidmore, Missouri had a population of around 440 people. It had a bank, a fuel station, post office, a grain silo and a tavern, but nothing much else. Today, its population is barely half of what it was back in 1981, and gone on most of the shops, but if you do street through the area now, it looks like you can at least fill your car and post a letter. Maybe the story I'll be telling you tonight had something to do with this, and it's a story of how a whole town turned vigilante on the town bully, Ken McElroy. Now, McElroy was born in 1934 on a farm not far from the centre of town. He was the 15th of 16 kids in a very poor family, I mean, this family was poor. They were dirt poor. His father often worked for other landowners, but eventually the family were able to purchase their own land. However, they all lived in a tiny two-bedroom house. Now, it looks like all 18 of them, or at least how many kids were left at home at the time. Now, when he was young, he fell off a hay wagon, apparently, which required him to have a metal plate to be implanted in his head. He was pretty tall, six foot three, jet black hair that he slicked back and he had those Elvis type sideburns. In his later years, he would get to around 270 pounds or so, and that's about 135 kilos. So he was a very big, intimidating guy. For such a quiet, serene rural area, McElroy certainly made his meanness known. And mean, that is a word that will keep popping up when people described McElroy. But he was more than mean. He was some someone that even the biggest and the toughest of the town avoided. When others spoke of Ken McElroy, they would often say, 
Don't ever trust him. And don't ever turn your back on him. Now, from what I can see, McElroy became trouble from around the 13 years of age. I got that one out. He was held back twice in the fifth grade. So you can imagine at that age, being two years older than the other kids, he would have been much taller and very much intimidating back then. McElroy was a bully at school and most kids avoided him, even the bigger and older kids. And he wouldn't fist fight. He'd pull a knife. And in his older years, if it wasn't a knife, it was a gun. The only exception was that he was happy to use his fists, but only on his girlfriends or his wives. Now, McElroy was a thief. Once when a shopkeeper called his dad to tell him that Ken had stolen something, his dad went down to the shop with a knife and threatened the shopkeeper. This is probably where McElroy learnt how to deal with people. He had very little parental supervision and basically did what he wanted. Now, McElroy, he left school in the ninth grade after hitting the principal and getting expelled. He and his little brother Tim would steal grain, fuel for their cars, and they'd even strip cars for parts that they actually needed for their own car. They weren't going down the super cheap auto or, or wherever you get your car parts for. They just found a car that they could get parts from. They'd take it. And guess what? They were never caught. The brothers then progressed to stealing cattle, pigs, and even breaking into houses and stealing antiques. The incidence of cattle rusting in Skidmore was around six times the average of anywhere else in the United States, with McElroy often having rolls of notes, $100 notes, in his pocket, even though he seemed to have no real job or no other apparent ways to make that sort of money. Now, it was quite difficult to get busted stealing livestock back then. The law at the time was that it wasn't a requirement to brand or tag your animals. So unless you were caught red-handed stealing livestock, you had to rely on the owner being able to describe each animal to prove it was theirs. So if you had 500 cows, it's going to be really hard to be able to say, hey, that's Daisy the cow, my cow. It's got the big brown patch over her her such lovely eyes. I mean, you can imagine, it's not going to happen. So McElroy apparently did make some of his money leasing land near his farm and trading and racing dogs. Now, amongst the dog racing community, he was well respected and he knew his stuff. He sort of behaved himself around those people. However, he would pick on poor people, not rich ones that had lawyers. And Ken had a lawyer himself. Richard McFadden, and he was a good lawyer, being able to get McElroy, McElroy off the hook 20 times and nearly off the hook that one final time. He not only stole livestock and guns, but he also stole chemicals that farmers needed for their farm. A warehouse that housed some of his this new very expensive chemical that got broken into. The next night it was broken into again. The proprietors decided to get a security guard armed with a shotgun to protect the place, thinking it would again get broken into. Five nights later, the guard heard someone breaking in. He got his shotgun and chased after the thieves, firing off a shot. Now, the sheriff was called, and as he approached the warehouse, he was passed by a yellow caddy going at high speed. The roads were icy, so he had to take care chasing the car, and he eventually lost it. 
Now, later we heard that Ken McElroy was in hospital getting shotgun pellets taken out of his ass. Now, Ken was arrested and was to be charged with theft. Now, the warrants for his arrest were never acted on and nothing came of the charges. Now, to say that McElroy was a womanizer is probably not that accurate. Yes, he always got the ladies' attention wherever he went and he did pride himself on getting with the wealthy farmers' wives, but he was much more interested in very young girls. At one time, he was hanging out with a couple of 17-year-old girls and remarked that they were safe, as they were too old. And he added that, I like my women young and tender. I like that young meat. He was known to seek out 12, 13 and 14-year-old girls to have sex with. He would groom them by buying them things, candy, ice cream, whatever. He'd pick them up from school or drop them off at the buses. He would gain their trust and then have sex with them. Any parents that confronted him over it would be threatened and then they'd just back right off. There were rumours that he raped the 14-year-old girl who got pregnant and died because she couldn't afford to go to hospital to have the twins she was carrying. A year later, he went back to the house and raped her sister. Now, I don't want to go into too much detail about McElroy's wives. It's not a deep dive episode, but what I will tell you is relevant to the way he treated people, women in particular, and he took what he wanted when he wanted and just don't try to stop him. At age 18, McElroy married Alita Marley Holland, who was age 17 at the time on June the 16th, 1952. Later, he started hanging out with a 15-year-old girl called Sharon. Now, Sharon fought with him one night in the truck, and he threatened her with a shotgun if if she didn't shut the fuck up. The shotgun went off and pellets tore open part of her chin. He would get charged over this, but would ultimately get away with it. To get out of the charges of assault with a deadly weapon, he divorced a leader and married Sharon. This wouldn't be the last time he would do this to get out of charges. They had a kid and then another. He beat her and locked her in the house. She soon learnt that to avoid a beating, she just did whatever he said. McElroy then found a new girlfriend, 14-year-old Sally. He brought her to the house to live with him and Sharon. He had sex with them and beat them up if they didn't do what he told them to do. The sheriff finally went to lay charges for beating Sally, but Ken sweet-talked her and she didn't sign the required papers to bring charges against him. Now, she was scared to leave him, but she eventually got up enough courage and fled to live with a foster family. Yes, she's that young. She, not only her and her kid, could go and live with a foster family. Now, McElroy tracked her down and took her back. Now, one of the things he did do was threatened the foster parents by saying, I'll give you your daughter back if you give me her back. Now, (laughs) what he was implying was, if I don't get her back, I'm taking your daughter and I'm going to hold her hostage. And if you don't give her back, I'll, I'll probably kill her. That's the way he operated. Now, when he did get her home, he beat the hell out of her. Now, Sally had three kids to Ken. Then Sharon had another three. Both Sally and Sharon were at one time both in the hospital at the same time having McElroy's babies. Sally then moved away after her father died and she ended up giving her kids up for adoption. Another woman or girl in McElroy's life was Alice Wood who was involved with him for 20 years and had three kids to him. 
She'd been beaten untold times by McElroy. Now, she loved and hated him. She even dreamed of killing him with his own guns. Alice had finally gotten over him when the sex and violence had finally become enough. She did say, though, that he was a good father to his children. Now, Trina was his fourth wife. When she was 14, McElroy started seeing her, and by seeing her, I mean having sex with her. He would end up being charged with raping her. However, she disputes being raped. Well, I mean, can you really give consent when you're 14? But let's carry on. What actually happened was that he was charged with raping her, but then tried to marry her as she was, she'd already had her first child with him. Now, Trina's parents, who had to give permission as Trina, who was now only 17, refused McElroy. In true McElroy style, who was still married at the time, he got a divorce, a house burnt down, Trina's parents finally gave permission, and they both went to a nearby county to get married. And by the way, the house that burnt down was Trina's parents, and the rape charges were dropped because he was now married to the victim. Trina would have two more kids to McElroy, bringing the total of his kids. Now, I don't know the exact number, but it looks like around 15 at this stage. Now, she would be with him until the end and often backed him up or covered his back, wielding her own shotgun. Now, I haven't mentioned too many dates tonight. There isn't much point. This mongrel from his early years onwards until his death, every day through the 50s, the 60s, the 70s and the early 80s, he was either stealing, raping, physically or emotionally abusing, grooming, and this rape and abuse was either some young 12 to 14-year-old girl or his very young wives. It was constant. He never backed off. If his wife pissed him off, he would beat her and it didn't take much to piss him off. If you crossed him in town or at a bar, you could expect to be stalked for days with him parked out the front of your house for hours at a time. And he would always be armed. He had a rifle rack in the back window of his truck. If he was raping your underage daughter and you told him to leave her alone, you would be threatened and stalked. No one said no to Ken McElroy. He did as he pleased. His violence and intimidation wouldn't stop until he was killed in 1981. As I mentioned before, his income was from cattle rustling, rustling, stealing pigs and antiques. He was able to retain a very good lawyer, Richard McFadden. McFadden was known as a mob lawyer who claimed McElroy was a perfect client. He did as he was told and always paid cash. Now, in order to keep the podcast from going into 10 episodes over this guy, and it easily could, I want to go over a couple of main incidents that stand out. I really suggest you read Harry N. McLean's book, In Broad Daylight, if you want to go the deep dive. It's absolutely shocking what Ken McElroy got away with. So other than the way he treated his wives and women, or really should should be just saying little girls, there are a few others that we need to talk about. There's Richard Sarge Stratton. Now, Stratton was the only cop that McElroy feared and respected, although that didn't stop him sticking a shotgun in the face of Richard's wife one day when she was sitting in a car. Now, Stratton had no qualms about pulling McElroy over, and he did many times. McElroy threatened him with a shotgun on one of these occasions. Now, Stratton pulled McElroy over one day because his car was riding low at the back. On inspection, there were four P-90 
pigs in the trunk or the boot for the rest of the world. Now, Stratton asked Ken if he'd stolen them. The next thing, Stratton had a shotgun in his face and, of course, he had to back off. Stratton, though, rather than backing off entirely and and avoiding McElroy, spent a lot of time keeping track of him, what he did and where he went. Stratton was seen as the only cop in Nodaway County that had the gonads to stand up to McElroy. Now then there's the town marshal, Dave Dunbar. Now he was brought in to keep some law and order in town as there was no official police presence. He wasn't brought in for McElroy. It was just, there's no coppers around, we'll get the marshal. He had no police training and had to buy his own gun if he chose to have one. However, he would get his ammo paid for. He took the marshal job as more of a lark than anything else. He was paid two forty a month for his efforts. He had no idea at the time about McElroy and his antics, but it wouldn't take long before he found out. McElroy would scare the badge right off Dunbar, but we'll get to that soon. And then there's the farmer, Romaine Henry, that McElroy shot twice with a shotgun after Henry challenged him for shooting weapons on his property. And of course, I'll get to him in a minute as well. Finally, the last major character in this saga is Ernest Bo Bonecamp. Bo had moved to Skidmore and ran a local grocery shop with his wife, Lois. Now, he was nearly 70 when the shit would eventually hit the fan, and he and his wife became targets of Ken McElroy. Literally, they would become targets. Okay, so let's get back to farmer Romaine Henry. In 1976, he encountered McElroy on his property. Now, Clifford Romaine Henry, who was born July 18, 1935, in Skidmore. Romaine was a 1953 graduate of Skidmore High School and was a farmer. He served his country in the U.S. Army and was a member of the Maitland Graham American Legion Post, number 256, the Skidmore Masonic Lodge, number 511, and the Claremont Baptist Church. So on July 27, 1976, McElroy was shooting his gun on Romaine's property. Now, Henry got in his old truck just to investigate. When he saw it was McElroy's truck on the side of the road, he decided he'd just better let it go. Before he could turn his truck around, McElroy stood in front of the, in the, front of the road with a shotgun. Romaine stopped and McElroy opened the door. He then said, Were you the dirty son of a bitch over at my place in a white Pontiac? Romaine was confused and scared now, looking down the barrel of McElroy's shotgun, and he said he didn't know anything about a white Pontiac. McElroy replied, You're a lying son of a bitch. He lowered the shotgun and fired. A shot blasted a huge hole in Romaine's stomach and blood splattered all over the driver's door. McElroy reloaded and shot again, this time at Romaine's face, hitting him in the forehead and cheek. He jumped out of the car, hoping to get a chance to run off, but then McElroy's gun jammed, giving Romaine a chance to get back in the truck and speed off, with McElroy in pursuit. Finally, McElroy backed off and Romain was able to make it home where he told his wife what happened and they took him to hospital. McElroy was arrested the next day and charged with felonously assaulting Romain with intent to kill or do great bodily harm. McElroy said he wasn't there and Romain must have been mistaken. McElroy had two witnesses that swore he was at home at the time. Although three people saw him in the immediate area at the time of the shooting, Funny enough, after intimidation from McElroy, they suddenly wouldn't give evidence. 
Richard McFadden, McElroy's lawyer, was able to keep stretching out the case so that after three years, Remain finally gave up and McElroy was acquitted. Remain estimated that McElroy parked out the front of his place in this time over 150 times. And this was his MO. Cross him and he'll stalk and intimidate you for days, weeks or years. He would never give up. In fact, you didn't have to cross him personally. Even if you showed support for someone who he was unhappy with, you yourself could become the target of his intimidation. In Romain's case, because he gave up over the constant delays in the case, there was no case, as he was the last witness standing. Okay, so now it's time to get to the part where this all kicks off and goes ballistic. Six foot five inch, 220 or 230 pound, Ernest Bo Bowenkamp was 69 when he was running a small general store in Skidmore. Now, that was just around the corner from a place called the D&G Tavern. Now, if you're going to watch this on my YouTube channel, and that'll be probably tomorrow it'll be uploaded, I will have the map and photos for you to see. Now, the shop was staffed by Lois, Bo's wife, and 20 years his junior. There was also Evelyn Sumi, who was behind the checkout counter, and Bo, he just ran the meat section up the back. Now, Lois, she was sort of like the boss. She did all the books, the taxes, all the ordering and administration stuff. At the rear of the shop was a room that backed out onto a loading dock. And from that loading dock, you could see the back and side of this D&G tavern. Now, Bo was pretty easygoing, while Lois was seen as the bossier one and she was more assertive. At about 2pm on April the 25th, 1980, at the Bone Camp's general store, two girls walked in, one a teenager, school age, and a small child around four years old. They wandered around the shop for a while and then went to the checkout to pay. The teenager had a candy bar and a sack of cookies and asked for a pack of smokes. The little child had some bubblegum and a jawbreaker. Evelyn rang up the candy bar, cookies and the smokes when the teenager said, here's the money for the candy bar and smokes. Now Evelyn, assuming she was going to split the order, she ended up cancelling it, then rang up just those couple of items. Now when Evelyn asked about the bubblegum and jawbreaker, the teenager replied that, hey, the kid's got her own money. When it looked like the kid wasn't going to pay, the teenager grabbed the jawbreaker and the gum and put it back on the shelf and then took her to walk out. But as they were going out, the child then grabbed the bubble gum and the jawbreaker again as she was about to walk out the side of the shop. Then Evelyn shouts out, ma'am, she still has the candy in her hand. The child then chucked a tantrum. Well, they left. Now, Lois, hearing the noise, came up to the front of the store as the door opened and a third older girl came in. Now, Lois noticed the girl was Tammy McElroy, Ken's kid. The other girl that had been in the shop, therefore, was Debbie McElroy. Lois asked what was up and Tammy replied that she wanted her money back and dropped the items her sister had paid for on the counter. Now, Tammy then said whoever was working here had accused her little sister of raiding the store. Evelyn tried to explain what went on but Tammy wouldn't have a bar of it. Lois tried to work something out. Now, Tammy said, no one accuses my little sister of stealing. This went on for a bit and Tammy stormed out saying, no one in her family would ever buy anything from this shop again. Now, Evelyn, she refunded the money and restocked the shelves. Now, Lois went outside to get a look at the other two girls and this sort of ticked them off. The three girls... They ended up returning to the store and started on Lois 
and Evelyn told them that she hadn't accused her sister of raiding the store. Tammy replied, yes, you did, and stormed out of the store. McElroy was pissed off when he found out what had happened. Just 20 minutes after the incident at the store, he walks through the front door with a knife in his hand, cleaning his nails. He asked what went on earlier in regards to his daughter and the candy. Bo told him to put the knife away, but McElroy replied, No one tells me what to do. Is that, <laughs> is that the right accent for someone in Missouri? No one tells me what to do. I think that's better. <laughs> Sorry, I don't want to offend anyone, okay? Anyway, Trina was with McElroy and started hurling abuse at Evelyn and Lois. I want to know which one of you fucking bitches accused my fucking kid of coming in this fucking store and raiding it. I'm going to take one or both of you bitches out of this store and into the street and whip your fucking asses off. Now, Lois and Evelyn were more shocked at her language than McElroy with his knife. Now, Evelyn tried to explain what happened, but uh, Trina was just going ballistic. McElroy told Trina to shut up while Evelyn tried to explain what went on. Trina started on again, and then McElroy asked for a pack of smokes, but Lois said that, hey, Tammy had told her that your family was never going to buy anything from her shop again. So he turned with Trina and said, that's right, and walked out of the shop. Now, Lois and Bo thought that would be the end of it, but Evelyn wasn't so sure, and she was pretty right. McElroy began stalking the Bowen Camp family, A few days after the incident in the shop, McElroy was walking outside at closing time. Bizarrely, he offered Lois $100 to fight Trina in the street. Of course, Lois declined and her and Bo closed the shop and went home. McElroy didn't like Lois being a woman standing up to him and he had no respect for Bo as he thought the Bo let Lois boss him around and in his world, men were the boss. Now, later that day, McElroy in one truck, Trina in a second, and a third, with probably Tammy driving, did laps around Bo and Lois's house. All three had rifles in the gun racks in the back window of the trucks. Later, McElroy parked his truck out the front of their house, pulled up the bonnet as if he'd broken down, and would look at the house and up and down the street. Lois called the cops, and McElroy drove off. You see, he had a radio in his truck so he could hear everything the cops were doing and the cops not wanting a confrontation with McElroy would make it very clear of what they were going to do to give McElroy time to move off. So the police turned up and Lois told him she was worried that McElroy had parked out the front. They told her they couldn't do anything about it. They left and about an hour later he was back out the front. Now this would just go on and on. One night he turned up and not only fired his shotgun into the air, but also into the house. Now things were escalating and there was no point calling the police. They were just on their own. Lois did go to the sheriff's office and reported the incident, but again, nothing happened. Now remember, this is all over the misunderstanding in the shop when McElroy's four-year-old daughter wanted a lolly or candy and didn't pay for it. Now, McElroy did this again a few days later, firing shotguns outside Bo and Lois's house before driving off. Later that night, he drove back and then shot into the house several times. He shot a couple of more times before sh- driving off, and Lois the next day, she just didn't call the cops. She went and bought a shotgun herself. 
Now, Lois called the marshal, Dave Dunbar, and asked if he could help her. He told her he'd do what he could, and a few days later he saw McElroy and asked him if he'd been firing shots in the public. Now, McElroy, of course, he denied it. And that night, McElroy, Trina and Tammy drove their three trucks slowly past Dave Dunbar, the marshal's house, just to let him know that he shouldn't get involved. On July the 8th, 1980, it was Bo's 70, 70th birthday. Now, usually the family would get together and celebrate, but this year those celebrations were subdued because of the danger that McElroy posed. Lois and Bo shut up shop and went home for a light dinner. Then Bo went back to the shop later to let the electrician in to do some work on the aircon. Bo noticed McElroy in his truck across the street from the tavern, which gave him a great view of the rear of Bo's shop. McElroy drove up to the back of the shop and Bo was sitting in a chair on the loading dock. McElroy asked him if he'd called the cops and Bo replied that he had no reason to. Bo then asked him to leave as it was private property and McElroy got mad and told him that no one tells him what to do. McElroy turned and approached four young boys that were watching the confrontation. He gave them money and told them to go inside the D&G tavern to buy themselves a drink. They were the only witnesses in sight. McElroy walked back to the loading dock and when Bo turned around he was staring down the barrel of a shotgun. Now Bo flinched to the right as a blast from the gun ripped through the side of his neck. He fell to the ground and started to bleed out. This shot was heard inside the tavern and the barman quickly locked the front and back doors and everyone inside went quiet, hoping McElroy didn't come in. One of the boys that had been given money to buy a drink, well he ran out the back and up to Bo's shop. He saw Bo lying in a pool of blood. He raced back to the tavern and called an ambulance. Marshal Dunbar was also called and he went to the shop. McElroy wasn't there and he ended up calling police. They attended and Bo they, they attended to Bo and then they waited for help. Now Bo was able to tell him who shot him, and Dunbar, well, he already knew who shot him. By the time the ambulance arrived, there was a crowd of about thirty or so people at the shop. Now it's probably at this time when the townspeople had probably started to finally have had enough of this McElroy person. Luckily, Bo survived as all the pellets had missed vital arteries and it was only him flinching to the right when he saw the shotgun that saved him. The local cops and Marshal Dunbar were not going to help be much help. They took crime scene photos and got some of the pellets out of the wall from the shotgun for evidence. They also interviewed witnesses, but just by chance, Richard Sarge Stratton, the only cop McElroy feared had been listening into the police radio when he heard about a shooting in Skidmore. Now, he was down south. He was miles away. He knew who it was, and he knew that McElroy would be listening into the police radio. So he jumps in his patrol car, fills it with fuel, and went off in pursuit. Now, he knew where the other police were going to try and head off the fleeing McElroy, but Stratton, who had studied McElroy, had a hunch on where he probably would go. He knew he had to get between McElroy and the Missouri River. He sped out of the driveway and said, I'm coming for you, you son of a bitch. He knew McElroy would head south and cross the border at Atchison, Levensworth or Kansas City and stay out of the state for a while until things had cooled down. Now, Stratton raced north up Highway 29, then turned into CC. He then turned west onto 59 and stopped at the intersection of 59 and H. Now, listening to the radio chatter, he decided to go north towards Fillmore on H and he kept it to himself as he knew where the other cops were and he knew McElroy was listening. 
As he entered Fillmore and crossed A, he saw McElroy and McElroy saw him. Val Stratton did a Yui and followed McElroy. Who, and at this stage, he had Trina in the truck with him. Stratton followed closely and called in for backup, knowing that taking on McElroy alone was going to be a very dangerous thing. Now, with backup on its way, McElroy, who could hear the radio chatter, turned onto a dirt road. Now, Stratton sensed he was doing this to lure him off the main road where the backup cars would probably find it hard to find where they had gone. He knew he had to pull him over quickly, and he did. Now, he grabbed his shotgun and very carefully approached the truck. He knew McElroy was dangerous, but he also knew knew Trina was just as much a threat. By the time backup arrived, McElroy and Trina were both under control. Not long after Stratton had arrested and booked McElroy, Trina was released as she actually hadn't been there at the time of the shooting. Now, 10 minutes after she was released, Stratton's wife got a phone call and the caller said, something bad's going to happen to your husband. He's not going to live until the trial. Now, he was, uh, McElroy was charged with felony assault in the first degree. Now, McElroy was bailed to appear August the 18th for his preliminary hearing. Now, on the afternoon of July the 9th, 1980, now this is just the day after Bo had been shot, the town was abuzz with stories from the night before. You can then imagine how shocked they were when McElroy, with Trina by his side, turned up at the D&G Tavern, sat down and ordered drinks. Here's this guy that had tried to murder an innocent old unarmed man by shooting him with a shotgun less than 24 hours before. And now he's sitting in a bar just metres away from the crime scene, drinking a beer as if nothing had happened. Now, I do think it's around this time that the townspeople, as a collective, had realised that by ignoring McElroy all these years and turning a blind eye to whatever he did in the hope he wouldn't turn on them was not the way to go. As you could easily be the next victim and for no reason at all. The local church minister had stopped by the house to see Bo after his release from hospital about a month after the shooting. And that very night, the church minister and his family were targeted by McElroy and Trina. The minister from that night, from that night on began packing heat and he kept packing until the very end. Now, one phone call he got described what was going to happen to him, and it's pretty disgusting. A bit of a trigger warning, I guess. What what was said on this phone call? If you keep minding other people's business instead of your own, we're going to rape your wife in front of you. Then we're going to cut your little boy's sex organs off and make him eat them. While you watch, we're going to tie you up and cut him into little pieces, and then all of us are going to fuck your wife in front of you, and then we're going to kill her. That's the sort of shit that you would get if you just supported someone that he was intimidating. Now, a couple of months after the shooting, Marshal Dunbar was at the D&G Tavern. As he was leaving, he heard a voice. Hey, Dave, come over here a moment. I want to talk to you. It was McElroy. Now, Dunbar was starting to think, fuck, 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 fuck. Here we go. Now, <clears throat> McElroy said, you go and testify against me? And then Dunbar said, I have to. It's my job. I'll kill anyone who put me in jail for the rest of my life, McElroy said. So next thing you know, Dunbar was staring down the barrel of a shotgun, but he was able to grab hold of the end and point it away from his face. He then felt cold steel on the back of his neck. Now this was Trina 
with her shotgun. Now Dunbar reported the incident to the sheriff, but he was told just to keep an eye on him. Now Dunbar was pretty pissed off that that was the sheriff's response and the next morning he walked into the gas station, which had been converted to City Hall, and laid his badge on the table. $240 a month wasn't worth it as long as McElroy was still in town. McElroy went about as usual intimidating witnesses, hoping that there would be no case against him. Now, at this stage, he'd gone to court 19 times, and each time his lawyer was able to get him off. Usually there would be no witnesses left after McElroy had scared them off, and there would be no witnesses and no case. Now, this time things would be a little bit different. At the preliminary hearing, it would be found that there was enough evidence for a trial to go ahead. Now, McElroy would get in trouble once more before this trial when a small accident in the truck would see him putting shotguns into other people's faces. Now, he would be charged for this and again get off as the people he pointed the gun at would be too scared to testify against him. He would again be acquitted and that would now make it 20 times he got off. McElroy continued to stalk the wife of the cop who arrested him, Margaret Stratton. He even pulled up to her house when he, she knew her husband, when he knew her husband was at work, and sat there with a shotgun pointed out the driver's window at her. This constant stalking and intimidation only stopped when Richard Stratton told a crim that McElroy knew of his plans to get McElroy alone one night and blow him away. Now, McFadden, McElroy's liar, tried to stretch out the trial date as much as he could, hoping that old Bo would die or probably just forget what had happened. Now, eventually, McElroy went to trial. Now, let's try and cut a long story short. He would be found guilty of assault with intent to kill, to the relief of not only the Bowen camps, but also the township of Skidmore. But to everyone's horror, later that day, McElroy waltzed into the D&G tavern, armed with an assault rifle with bayonet, and sat down for a drink, making threats of what he was going to do to 70-year-old Bo. I mean, fuck's sake. He'd been released pending his appeal. Well, this did shake up the community. Finally, after 21 court cases, Ken McElroy had been found guilty, and yet here he was, sitting at the bar, doing what he did best, threatening people while carrying a gun. On July the 10th, 1981, the townspeople of Skidmore, they met at the Legion Hall in the centre of town with the sheriff and the mayor to discuss how to protect themselves from this monster Ken McElroy. Now, while this was going on, McElroy drove into town and went for a drink at the D&G Tavern. And when the town folks heard he was in the tavern, they all left and walked towards it. The sheriff and mayor left. The, the sheriff left in his patrol car. He got out of town. The group, maybe 60 or so residents, well, they filled the tavern. McElroy got up, bought a six-pack and left the bar. And Trina was waiting for him in the truck parked out the front. As McElroy sat in the truck and was about to start the engine, a shot rack rang out and McElroy was hit in the head. Then another shot and another, all from different directions. Trina was dragged out of the, her side of the truck covered in brain and blood, screaming. McElroy, the town bully, the coward, the pedophile and thief was dead. No one called an ambulance, no one cared. And when the investigated investigation started, no one saw anything. Ironically, the only witness was Trina, and her statement carried so little weight that eventually, and to this day, no one's been charged over her husband's killing. 
Now, Trina would eventually file an unlawful death suit against the town and others, including Del Clement, who she claimed was one of the shooters, and it would be settled out of court for just $17,000. So, Islanders, what a case. How a whole town was terrorised by one man for decades is almost beyond belief. But McElroy, he had the ability, bit by bit, over many, many years to instil fear in anyone who dared cross him. And not by his physical strength, because he was nothing but a coward. He would use guns and knives. The way he went about his intimidation was to go after anyone who might try and help out the targets of his abuse. This meant the townspeople would often turn a blind eye when he went after someone in the fear that they would be the next target. Finally, after he tried to kill old Bo and he was back drinking the next day after being arrested and then back drinking the day after being found guilty on the the intent to kill charges, that the town finally stood up to him where the law couldn't. Now, I'm no fan of vigilante justice, but fuck's sake, they had no choice. You can imagine what would have happened if he'd gone to prison and what would have happened when he got out. Trina, look, I'm in a two minds over her. First, she was just a kid when McElroy first groomed her. But by the end, she was just as bad as him. I mean, what do you think? Now, she did die of cancer in 2012. The lawyer, I'm just going to say, what a piece of shit Richard McFadden was. So it was a bit longer than I wanted to, but I had to leave out so much. I really do suggest you read In Broad Daylight by Harry M. McLean. Look, I got it on Kindle. I ended up getting it on Audible because it's about 13 hours of reading. It really does go deep into Ken McElroy's depravity. So that's the end of the, this show this week. You can watch this on YouTube. And Patreons, thanks to all my past, present and new patrons. Your financial support does make a difference as True Crime Island is commercial free for all. So no annoying ads for undies, food or anything like that. And all my content is available for everyone, no matter if you can donate or not. Now, I'll be doing the Patreon rewards this week and sorry for the delay. And thanks to Brianna Sava for your kind donation. Thanks, Brianna. Boom fuckalunga. Now, if you want to help out the island, you can go to patreon.com forward slash true crime island. If you don't like the monthly thing, you can also send beer money. I like the beer money to PayPal. The PayPal link is donate.truecrimeisland.com or paypal.me forward slash true crime island. Don't forget, support yourself before you support the island because I do know times are tough at the moment. I've got merch at Threadless and Redbubble now. I've updated the website at truecrimeisland.com. There's a contact and merch link up there for Threadless and Redbubble. There's also links on my website, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. You can also support the show by rating and reviewing, also by sharing it with your friends and family. Again, please feel free to check out my YouTube channel and subscribe. Please comment, subscribe and hit the little bell if you want notifications. I've also added a link for this on my website. If you want to contact me, the best way is cambo at truecrimeisland.com. All the other ways are a little bit difficult for me to go back over and search if required. Okay, that's about it. I hope I just didn't offend anyone with my accents this week. And I don't even know if they're accurate accents, but sorry. But uh, yeah, okay, I've been your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island, and as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night, boom, fucker, lungos.